welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, NPR, The Onion Radio News, and Slate.com. Voting for the podcast awards continues until November 6th. Please go to podcastawards.com and vote for the show. This guy is too funny, man. He's too funny. In a world where uh, the right wing is neutralized, and we might soon be in that world. I'm highly entertained by this clown. I can't. I got to ask him one day. I got to find him in a, in a place where he's unguarded, and get him a get straight answer. Is he messing with us, or can he possibly be this much of a maniac? I I don't want to be in a place alone with Michael Savage, so I'll probably never get that opportunity. But listen to this maniac. Here he is. What do you think about Paul, Colin Powell? Uh, Coming out like shock of all shocks for for uh, what's his name uh, for Bo. Do you think Colin Powell came out for Bo because of his race? Duh. <laughs> you know, I thought about this. I, it was embarrassing for me to watch Colin Powell lie about Obama, and I thought this. And, and forgive me for being so blunt. So but blunt. it seems to Michael Savage that the only people who don't seem to vote based on race are white people of European origin. That's an interesting ob observation. The only people who don't seem to vote based on race are whites of European origin. But why is that? If everyone else votes along racial lines, as they obviously do, and proudly, by the way. So my biggest statement is about Powell, which is that the only people who don't seem to vote based on race are white people of European origin. And, you know, that becomes a, a philosophical question worth talking about. Why are white people of European origin the only people who don't seem to vote based on race? Is it because they're more tolerant? Is what it is because that? whites of European origin are more accepting and more tolerant of other races? I wonder if they're going to be that way once they find out that uh, not all... Uh, Let's say not all people love them as much as they may think. Uh, okay, I have so many things to say about this. I'm going to get to his last comment, which is the worst, in a second. But first, what's with the pronunciations? Why are you so tolerant? <laughs> I, let me be so blunt. That's <laughs> a lunatic, man. I mean, if he's kidding around, all right, I guess. But I, I don't see it. And then the second part of it is, he's like, yeah, you ever notice that white people are the only ones that don't vote based on race? No, no, I didn't notice that. <laughs> What's your facts behind this observation of yours? None. Just stated as a fact. Well, you ever noticed that? No. In fact, I've noticed in this country. Come on now, man. Dude, seriously, Michael. Michael Weiner, that's his real name. You've never studied American history? You don't think white people in this country voted based on their race? How can anyone really say that, man? How can you say that with a straight face? Unless your whole show should, is named Michael... Clown Savage show. And it starts with the music. The white people have never voted based on race in this country. All right, all right. I'm going to let that go because it is so preposterous. But let's get to the last part, which is actually disturbing. He's saying, these tolerant, accepting white people, they're going to get a different lesson when Obama wins. And what is that lesson? What? You know, it's interesting because a personal anecdote, a friend of mine said his parents went to church and talked to all their friends. And they said, who are you going to vote for? And their friends all said, McCain. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. Why? They said, you know, black people, 
And if they get in charge, uh, if uh, Obama wins, they're going to feel like they're in charge, and then you know what happens. And I really don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know what Savage is talking about. I don't know what those people in church are talking about. What happens? Do all of a sudden, like, like, can black people pull you over and be like, okay, I'm in charge now. Okay, you need to do what I tell you. Can they, take, can they pull you over in traffic? Can they come to your house? Be like, okay, we're in charge now. What does that mean? That's nuts, dude. That's absolutely nuts. But the problem is not, people who are this nutty never get challenged because they don't live in the same world usually as sane people. Like they get clustered in their little groups and in their basement they listen to Michael Savage and they're like, yeah, yeah, black people take over. It'll be terrible. Oh. And so no one bothers to ask him, what does that mean? Is Obama going to open up the White House and then he's going to put a big boom box in front? Be like, hey, oh, black people, come on in. We take it over now. Okay, and even if he did, then what? Are they going to come take your house? Is that what's going to happen? You already lost your house because of the Republicans. But what else could happen to you that hasn't already happened at the hands of the Republicans? I just don't get it, man. Ooh, you win. It's your show now. So what's it going to be? Because people will tune in. How many train wrecks do we need to see? Before we lose touch of And we thought this was low. Well, it's bad getting worse. Oh, where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV shows. Where'd all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of I'm Renee Montaigne. And I'm Steve Inskeep, joined this morning by our colleague Michelle Norris. Welcome back to the program. Good to be with you, Steve. She's host of our afternoon news magazine, All Things Considered, and we've been listening together to voters as they talk about race in the election. For the record, I'm white. And I'm black. And we've assembled 15 voters, black, white, Latino, and South Asian. That makes them as diverse as York, Pennsylvania, the city where we've now met them twice. We had dinner together this week. Good. Hello, Leah. Hi there. Good to see you again. We circled the chairs in a hotel suite. Do you want the seat? Do you want me to take the sofa? Okay. If we'd turned on the TV in the corner, we'd likely have seen campaign ads. Pennsylvania is a battleground state, and our group is helping decode language in the presidential campaign. That requires decoding some language of their daily lives. Do you put a label on yourself? Interesting question. Especially interesting for Jasmine Byers, a woman with curly hair and green eyes. She's half black and half white. You know, sometimes when you're filling out applications for college or just for a job or how do I want to be identified or perceived? And sometimes you wonder, well, would it benefit me to maybe put select African-American only? Well, then I'm like, well, that's not really truly who I am. So a lot of times I find myself selecting other. To some degree, you get to make a choice. Absolutely. Which brings to mind Barack Obama's choices. If asked directly, the Democrat says he's black. Some of his ads display his white mother and grandparents. And so the question is, does that make a difference in how he is received or accepted or maybe rejected by voters as they've gone through this very long election season? I understand his world. I'm white in color, but I'm Latina in heart and blood. Maribel Burgos, who's Puerto Rican, says she understands because it's her world, too. On paper, they need to be hiring minorities. I am Latina, but when I walk into a place, they automatically say, she looks white, she's one of us, and I get hired. And hmm. So I use it both ways, and it's, it's a sad world, but it is reality. We come in so many hues. 
I mean, I myself, my father was a light-skinned black man. My mother was a dark-skinned black woman. Margie Orr works um, as a receptionist. It goes back to really the skin coloring because I really don't think Barack Obama would have gotten as far as he has if his skin coloring was dark. I just have a question that I don't have an answer for necessarily, but nobody has talked about why. The question comes from Sarah Yacoviello. She's white, conservative, and expecting her second child. Is it because that a lighter-skinned black man looks more white, looks more Caucasian? I, I'm it's just not wondering. just that they look more white. It's that in this country, if you are of a lighter hue, it probably means that you are mixed with white okay. blood. Calvin and Weary is a dark-skinned man and a high school drama teacher. The thing is, is when you talk about a Barack Obama, who they show you these pictures of his white family and who he grew up with, what it's basically saying to the American people is, don't worry. You don't have to worry about him doing these things that you might think he might do that comes from this African-American culture. Before decoding more of the campaign, we should explain something. Some people of color say they have a complicated relationship to their country. Take Margie Orr. She's not the kind of person who hangs a flag outside her door. I'm proud of America, but I'm not there putting a flag on my house. Why not? I don't know. Maybe it's because... When the United States shows me that I'm of totally a total equal person, then maybe I will put a flag out on my property. As Margie Orr suggests, America has sometimes excluded African Americans. Now a black man is seeking to lead America. And with that in mind, consider some campaign language about America and patriotism. John McCain has a slogan that was used very often in the convention, has been used very often since. Two words, country first. Has anybody heard that? Yeah. Country first? <laughs> Take a crack at it for me. Your view matters because they're appealing to you. How does that phrase, country first, distinguish John McCain from his opponent? Well, on this specific one, I think he's trying to say three things. Jeff Lobach is a lawyer. He's white, and he supports John McCain. First, he's trying to remind the voters about how he's lived his life, and especially the showcase experience of the POW time. I think he's also, he has a whole litany of things that come after country. One of them is party. And I think he's trying to make that statement that he has a history of bipartisanship too, reaching across the aisle. And those things I think are admirable and good tactics. Perhaps less admirable is, I think he's using it to raise questions about whether his opponent also puts his country first. You're saying that as a McCain supporter that you see not the only message there, but one of the messages, hey, Barack Obama's less patriotic than our guy. I do think that's the intention, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who gets that sense. Liam Warren, uh, what do you think? I think McCain is much more patriotic than Barack Obama. Liam Moreland has been listening to conservative media claims about Obama's religion, about his years overseas, about his links to a 1960s radical, Bill Ayers. Ayers was featured in a speech by vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin. We listened to some tape of what Palin said about Obama. Now, this is not a man who sees America as you and I see America. We see America as a force for good in this world. America of exceptionalism. Yes, USA, USA. 
When we play that tape, it gets Charlotte Bergdahl, an undecided voter, wondering about the we who see America a certain way. I don't like that word we. Yeah, Who's we? we? Does she mean Republicans? Probably her party base, I would assume. I'm, I'm assuming, but... Does she mean you? She should have said I. This question of who's we. Sarah Palin has defined who we is. She said, I'm speaking for all the Joe Sixpacks out there. When you hear the phrase Joe Sixpack, who, do, who is that? Who do you imagine? Common, everyday working man. Yep. Listen to his country music. Country first. <laughs> then a man named Mohammed Khan speaks up. He's an immigrant from Bangladesh. He owns a diner with a giant American flag painted on the outside of the building. Joe Sixpack is uh, people just like me. Work every day, pay their taxes, but she is not talking for me. Hmm. In some people's minds, Joe Sixpack is a white guy. No. Anybody else think so? Think Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a white man. That's what she meant. Blanche, go ahead, actually. You've been waiting. As soon as I heard her say that, I knew exactly what she was talking about. That's Blanche Hake, a retired teacher. When I hear Joe Sixpack, I think of the hunter and his gun and his dog, and that's a definite white man out in the countryside. And I have a son like that who is the Joe Sixpack. The gist of it is that the white man is the hard worker. Margie Orr. The others are lazy. They don't work as hard. So that's where the Joe Sixpack comes in. He's a hard-working white man. This tour of language and its meanings doesn't seem to surprise one member of our group, that drama teacher, Cal Weary. He voted twice for President Bush and now supports Barack Obama. This is a political battle. It's a battle. And short of these guys sitting in a pit with socks and stones hitting each other and whoever comes out of it wins, this is, they're, they're going to play. They're going to tug at our heartstrings. They're going to tug at our emotions. They're going to tug at our primal fears of each other because each of them believes that they are the one who can do the best job for this country and they'll do whatever they need to do to get there short of something illegal. Talk to this group of voters in York, Pennsylvania, and you do hear the primal fears that Cal Weary mentioned. And we'll explore those fears when our conversation on race continues this afternoon on All Things Considered. I feel if we put Obama in the White House, there will be chaos. What's wrong with the world, mama? People living like they ain't got no mama. The whole world addicted to the drama Only attracted to things that'll bring the trauma Overseas, yeah, we trying to stop terrorism But we still got terrorists here living In the USA, the big CIA The bloods and the crips and the KKK But if you only have love for your own race Then you only leave space to discriminate And to discriminate only generates hate And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate Yeah this is what you demonstrate, and that's exactly how anger works and operates. Man, you gotta have love just to set it straight. Take control of your mind and meditate. Let your soul gravitate to the love, y'all, y'all. People killing, people dying, children hurting, you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach, and would you turn the other cheek? Obama has a glimmer of hope surgically grafted to his left eye. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. 
Staffers for Illinois Senator Barack Obama confirmed today that the popular Democrat star underwent a grueling 16-hour procedure to implant a glimmer of hope in his left iris. Obama's public relations director John Sisek says the operation will help Obama to get his message across more effectively than mere words. The voters want to see hope and excitement in a candidate's eyes. Uh, you know, this new surgery is really going to make the senator come alive. Some of the senator's consultants fear that the glimmer of hope may be perceived by voters as a glint of madness, requiring a costlier procedure to remove it. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Sala Beher is a political science professor at Harvard and author of the book Going Negative, How Political Advertising Alienates and Polarizes the American Electorate. Well, it seemed to work four years ago, negative advertising with the Swift Boat ads, for example, against John Kerry. But this time around, polls show, the new poll out by the New York Times shows that independents are really turned off by the negative ads. Uh, yes, and that's what we found in the past. What negative advertising tends to do is to drive independent voters out of the electorate. They just are reminded why they don't like politics to begin with. I think this election, though, might be different than la previous elections in that um, the other thing that the campaigns have to do to win votes is to talk about the issues that are uh, on the forefront of the voters' minds. And I think the financial crisis that hit in early September really completely changed the dynamic uh, of the election. And the McCain campaign attacks really weren't about the economic situation facing the country, and that's what the voters really want to hear about. John McCain has accepted public financing, and so that means that a lot of the money for these ads comes from the RNC. So um, what kind of effect or what kind of power does he have in curtailing that negative advertising if he wants to? And what kind of power does he have on where those ads go and if they're going to go towards him or to further down the ticket in congressional races? Well, because John McCain accepted public financing, he's limited to $84 million. And the Obama campaign has been able to raise many times more money for that. That's money that the Obama campaign itself controls. The compensating factor is the amount of money that the Republican National Committee can raise and spend on behalf of the campaign or attacking the Obama campaign. Unfortunately for McCain, he doesn't control the message from the RNC. And so he does not get to say that they want to, to maybe push the tax message. And so they've kind of lost control over the message of the campaign as it's run through the RNC or through independent groups. The really difficult trade-off, I think, for the Republicans coming into the home stretch of the election is going to be where they want to spend their resources in the last two weeks. And that is because if they judge the McCain campaign uh, can't win the presidency, then they will probably want to divert their resources to the Senate. And the Senate elections are starting to break in the Democratic direction and getting very close to uh, a Democratic pickup of nine seats, which would give them 60 votes in the Senate and allow them to close debate whenever they like.
I don't know if you have studied this, but what is more effective in convincing an undecided voter one way or the other, ads, uh, things they see on TV, or conversations they have with their neighbors? This is an important line of research that's picked up over the last uh, eight years, and it's really been spearheaded by a couple of professors at Yale, Don Green and Alan Gerber. Uh, the old mode of campaigning really was television advertising, and much of political science had turned its attention to that. But an even older mode was just direct contact, talking to your neighbors, uh, canvassing, and so forth. And Don and Alan refocused us on those modes of communication. And what they've really documented is a wide range of different forms of direct communication and direct campaigning and shown that some are very effective and some are not so effective. And I think the Obama campaign actually really picked up on their research and rebuilt a kind of infrastructure of direct contact. And one of the peculiar aspects of this election is that the McCain campaign is largely a television campaign and the Obama campaign is probably equally television and direct grassroots campaigning. And and that could be the difference in the effectiveness? I think one of the things that is happening is that the individual conversations you have with your neighbor, with the person down the street, somebody you know at work, uh, might be counteracting and, and diffusing the negative television advertising. The same blood, we cry the same tears, we have the same fears, we pass the same years, we see the same stars and know the same sky, we pass the same time, we all live and die. Cause friends, family, we're all sticking in blood, and if you never fail love, then I feel with you, cause, cause lies pass above us, seven forty sevens, the seas well below us, before they go to heaven, everything in between all has a meaning, some stay connected while others keep feeling, looking for that meaning, but the lost can't be found, drive to your So let's uh, move on to what Pat Palin thinks that a vice president does. Mm, this is going to be trouble. She got a question relate to her from a third grader who gets extra credit for staying up and asking the vice presidential nominee a question. Good job. Yeah, betcha. So uh, that question is asked to her, and let's watch the answer. Oh, God help us. Here we go. Some local grade schoolers for the last few elections. We do a feature Good. called Questions from the Third Grade. Good. Brandon Garcia wants to know, what does the vice president do? Oh, that's something the Piper would ask me as a second grader also. Uh, oh, that's a Piper. great question, Brandon, and a vice president has a really great job because not only are they there to support the president's agenda, they're like the team member, the teammate to that president, but also they're in charge of the United States Senate. So if they want to, they can really get in there with the senators and make a lot of good policy changes that will make life better for Brandon and his family and his classroom, and it's a great job, and I look forward to having that job. Yeah, 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 yeah. The vice president is not in charge of the Senate. It's just not. The vice president only goes to the Senate to be the quote-unquote president of the Senate if there is a tie. It's in the Constitution. Harry Reid said she might want to reread or perhaps read for the first time the Constitution. Oh, elbow from the sky. <laughs> okay. Only used in case of a tie. Now, okay, look, you might say, in the beginning of that clip, I'm watching and I'm thinking, look, I might even give her a pass on it because she's taken the, you know, the title of Senate of the President of the Senate and, uh, and trying to explain it to a third grader, right? Like the George Bush excuse. 
And I let her back away from it. But did you see the back end where she said, and really get in there and affect the policy decisions that they do? In the, no, they, no, 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 no. The vice president doesn't really get into the Senate and affect any policy decisions they make. No, the, the Congress passes the laws, and then the executive branch executes those laws. I mean, come on. You can't, you can't do it, man. You don't know. You don't know. God, you don't even know what the vice president does and you're running for vice president. Don't say things like that. I mean, look at that answer. You have to understand that if you're a savvy person running for vice president, that you can't go in there and say that the vice president is going to get into the nitty-gritty of Congress. It, that is not their job. Oh, come on. Ay, 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 ay. McCain is 72 years old. He's had melanoma. He's had cancer four times. There is a, it was a long article in the New York Times uh, over the weekend about the dispute whether his melanoma is stage two or stage three. There's an uh, Army report that it says it might be stage three. If it is, his chance of surviving 10 years is only 36%. He's already lived eight of those years. Okay? I can't ha we can't have it, man. We can't have this person. Uh, possibly as the president of the United States of America, we already saw the kind of damage that inflicts over eight years. We, oh, come on, come on, please, please, somebody help us out. Okay. So now, uh, there's also been a back and forth about her comments on how the country is pro-America, or they are pro. Uh, I'm sorry, they are uh, pro-America parts of the country, right? Now, I didn't cover that if you notice on the show because I thought she just misspoke. Okay. I, I didn't think that she thought necessarily that there are kind of parts of the country that are more pro-America than I. I don't mind Obama and Biden making hay of it. That's politics, okay? That's the way it goes. Uh, and Biden did, and he said, come on, I'm tired of this. And, you know, the Republicans and conservatives have said it in the past. So uh, Bill O'Reilly said that he wouldn't mind if the court tower in San Francisco was blown up by terrorists. Okay, and how many times have you heard them about Taxachusetts, and et cetera, et cetera? And that thing drives me crazy. But it seemed like from the way she said it that she kind of, as usual, blundered with her words. And she's come out later and apologized for it. She came out and said, yeah, I was misinterpreted. And then Biden said, hey, you know what? If she says she was misinterpreted, she was misinterpreted. And then furthermore, she came out and said, hey, if I miscommunicated that, I apologize. So give her a pass. Uh, but, of course, O'Reilly has different ideas. Let's show you a quick Bill O'Reilly clip on this. Out on the campaign trail, Sarah Palin and Joe Biden saw things a bit differently. We believe that the best of America is in these small towns that we get to visit and in these um, wonderful little pockets of what I call real America, being here with all of you, hardworking, very patriotic, um, very um, pro-America areas of this great nation. We are all patriotic. We all love our country in every part of this nation. And I'm tired. I am tired, 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 tired of the implications about patriotism. Well, we don't all love America. We aren't all patriotic. Not for a second. Well, thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. Of course, Bill's patriotic and conservatives are, but us libs, uh, we're 50-50 at best. Man, they got some nerve. They really do.
Obama's outgoing voicemail message is not that inspiring. This is the Onion Radio News, sponsored by Grand Marnier's Grand Moments Contest. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Barack Obama was blasted today by critics who found no hope at all in his tired, monotone voicemail message. Calling the greeting, quote, more of the same and what you might expect from a politician, media analyst Kevin Blakely says the message does little to encourage callers to leave messages. I don't think anyone who uh, quotes his cell phone and and has to suffer through that is going to vote for him. Blakely went on to praise GOP candidate John McCain's voicemail message where he sings Merle Haggard's The Fighting Side of Me while playing the spoons. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Incrimination, innuendo. This is high season for the negative campaign ad. John McCain admits if the election's about the economy, he's going to lose. But Obama's friendship with terrorist heirs isn't the issue. The issue is Barack Obama's judgment. Washington sold them out with the help of politicians like John McCain. Barack Obama. More empty words. Well, it seems a perfect time to talk again with voiceover artists Scott Sanders and Dennis Steele, who do a lot of political attack ads. And guys, I could swear it was only yesterday that we talked. It was actually two years ago, just about this time. That's right. Time flies when you're having a really lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Scott Sanders there. And Scott, you are... The the big Kahuna here in the in the gloom and doom department. Uh, you're you're the hired gun. I I I am. I mean, I do positive ads, but um, I've done very few this year. Very few. Well, in fact, we're going to hear you right now on this negative ad from John McCain. Obama's one accomplishment: legislation to teach comprehensive sex education to kindergartners. Learning about sex before learning to read. Barack Obama, wrong on education, wrong for your family. I'm John McCain. And I... I don't know. That's pretty scary, man. <laughs> that makes the pair in my neck stand up. Well, this ad has become notorious and, and is widely regarded as completely misstating Barack Obama's record. How did you feel about doing that ad? Um, you know, you really, I mean, I, you know, both of us are hired guns, and you have to put it behind you. I mean, you're hired to do a job that's just like you. You've you've got to put whatever prejudices you have behind you and just go for it. Nobody ever asks you what your political affiliation is. No. They ask, how soon can you get here? Uh-huh. And, you know, and, and I mean, we get paid to be convincing. We get paid just if we were selling any other product. Dennis Steele, what what are you selling this season? What's your specialty? I am mostly talking about taxes. It's really all about the economy this yeah, year. Yeah. In all the spots that I've done this year, I have not mentioned the war once. Me neither. It's a it's a back burner issue. Yeah. Let me, oh. I want to ask you a little tradecraft question here. Um, Scott, are there words, particular words you're having a special fun with this year? Yes. What? The congressional liberals. 
that's the big thing. <laughs> At least in the spots I've done. I know you can but, do a much know, dirtier version of liberal than that. I, I can. <laughs> Let me hear it. Um, 13 trillion in new taxes, all from congressional liberals. Just they're bad people. You're convincing me. <laughs> they're bad. Hey, you know, you're in, in Philadelphia. I'm here in Washington, so I can't see you. But what's going on with your face right now? Dennis, why don't you describe what Scott's doing with his face when he really sinks down there? Well, he kind of gets squinty, gets a little closer to the microphone. That's I, I, I tend to use them, especially in the spots that I've been doing, because they're they're so intense. I kind of look past the microphone as if there were another person standing right behind it, and I'm in a room of crowded people, and I'm going like this. It's the congressional liberals. <laughs> yeah, I'll have another drink. Yeah, the congressional liberals. <laughs> I feel like you're inside they're, that they're, microphone right, right now. Right, well, gonna... they're the real problem. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 I tend to... But, you know, it depends upon what, what your copy is. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, um, let me toss some words by you and, and see how nasty you can make them sound, okay? Both of you? <laughs> sure. Socialist. <laughs> He's a socialist. Great. A socialist is not good. Okay. <laughs> how about... Uh, we've heard this one, too. How about erratic... Mm, yeah, yeah, we said that a few times. Yes, yes. Yeah. What is he talking about? He's erratic. <laughs> All right, let, let's try a more of the same. Mm. How to? How to? How? Let's see. Is it uh, too many taxes? Too many promises? More of the same? Yeah. Wow. I believe I said that this morning. Do you guys get tired of negative ads? Do you get tired of doing them? Yes. Scott, you do? No, I no, I don't. <laughs> no. Because I have two kids in college. <laughs> I mean, I'll that, I'll be honest. Yeah. You know, I plus, I mean, I, I hate to sound high-minded because I I I don't do this for this reason, but it is part of the democratic process. People go on the air and they they try to convince people to vote a certain way, and that's the way we run our system of government. The other thing is, I'm not, you know, I can do positive ads. I've done thousands. But, you know, I mean, I think you're wired a certain way. And uh, I think if you put my positives uh, against my negatives, well, you hear the positive and you say, yeah, that's a good spot. And then you hear the negative and you say, Shoo, whoo, that's a great spot. <laughs> but you said you do get tired of them. Yeah, it would be nice to lighten up a tad. Well, Scott Sanders and Dennis Steele, maybe we'll be chatting again about all this two years from now, the next election maybe. cycle. Well, hopefully, yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Voiceover artist Dennis Steele and Scott Sanders, who wants us to know. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Today's story is called Registering Doubt. If we can nationalize banks, why not our election process? And it's written by Richard L. Hassan. Like our financial system, our voter registration system needs a federal government bailout. Before the election, while the public and press are still paying attention, we should get both presidential candidates to commit to a more sensible, secure, and universal voter registration process. When it comes to charges of voter fraud and vote suppression, each election is worse than the last. This year, John McCain has claimed that some fraudulent voter registration cards turned in by ACORN employees threatened the fabric of democracy. The Obama campaign has sent letters to Attorney General Michael Mukasey accusing Republicans of deliberately trying to suppress the vote. And the Ohio Republican Party is battling the Ohio Secretary of State in litigation that's already made it to the Supreme Court over mismatches between voter registration and motor vehicle department databases. Now the House Minority Leader wants the Department of Justice to get involved to stop voter fraud. That went so well last time, so why not? These charges and countercharges are the real danger to the fabric of our democracy. If people are not convinced their votes will be accurately counted, they're more likely to view election results as illegitimate and therefore the government less worthy of our respect and willingness to abide by the rule of law. What can be done about it? Though there are many things that can be done to improve our election system, from nonpartisan election administration to a uniform ballot design for federal elections to improvements in our voting machinery, the most urgent fix is needed for our system of voter registration. Right now, voter registration takes place primarily on the county level, and it requires a lot of effort on the part of outside groups such as ACORN, the political parties, and others. These groups sometimes work with volunteers, but more often than not, they pay people to collect voter registration forms. This is where a lot of the registration fraud comes from. Even for workers not paid by the card, a low-wage worker doing voter registration may be tempted to falsify information to keep his or her job, going so far as to register names in the phone book or cartoon characters. This is why registration fraud does not lead to actual election fraud. These false names are not part of any effort to get thousands of people to the polls claiming to be someone else, to vote for a candidate whose supporters cannot verify how anyone at the polling place has voted. The New York Times recently reported that ACORN turned in about 400,000 registration cards that were duplicates, incomplete, or fraudulent. And in California, a Republican-leaning group has been accused of changing Democratic registrants to a Republican affiliation without their permission. Why not, when they were paid 7 to $12 for each Republican registration? The solution is to take the job of voter registration for federal elections out of the hands of third parties and out of the hands of the counties and states and give it to the federal government. The Constitution grants Congress wide authority over congressional elections. The next president should propose legislation to have the Census Bureau, when it conducts the 2010 census, also register all eligible voters who wish to be registered for future federal elections. High school seniors could be signed up as well so that they would be registered to vote on their 18th birthday. When people submit change of address cards to the post office, election officials would also change their registration information. This change would eliminate most voter registration fraud. Government employees would not have an incentive to pad registration lists with additional people in order to keep their jobs.
The system would also eliminate the need for matches between state databases, a problem that has proved so troublesome because of the bad quality of the data. The federal government could assign each person a unique voter identification number, which would remain the same regardless of where the voter moves. The unique ID would prevent people from voting in two jurisdictions, such as snowbirds who might be tempted to vote in Florida and New York. States would not have to use the system for their state and local elections, but most would choose to do so because of the cost savings. There's something in this for both Democrats and Republicans. Democrats talk about wanting to expand the franchise, and there's no better way to do it than the way most mature democracies do it, by having the government register voters. For Republicans serious about ballot integrity, this should be a winner as well. No more ACORN registration drives, and no more concerns about Democratic secretaries of state not aggressively matching voters enough to motor vehicle databases. Finally, universal voter registration is good for the country, not only because it will make it easier for those who wish to vote to do so, but because it should end controversy over ballot integrity that threatens to undermine the legitimacy of our election process. If President McCain or Obama makes this a priority, we can have the system ready in time for the president's re-election. Michelle Obama is all that stands between the love-struck media and Barack Obama. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. An insanely jealous national media identified Michelle Obama today as the only barrier remaining between them and dreamboat presidential hopeful Barack Obama. Now, after cutting off a brief affair with GOP vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin, the media say all that remains is for Mrs. Obama to, quote, fall off a boat or something. Columnist Mark Werther. Barack will turn to us for support, and then he'll be ours. The media, who have admittedly loved too much in the past, have promised never again to repeat the mistake they made when they gave First Lady Laura Bush a fighting chance and were hurt badly. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. stories of the day. Uh, the Republicans are going to war. Let's sound the war drums, man. Let's go crazy. All right, the only problem? 
They're going to war against each other. Sarah Palin versus John McCain. Their advisors are leaking like a sieve. And they're throwing jabs at one another. They got snipers on the roof. They're like, boom, 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 boom. Okay, taking political pot shots at one another. So I, this is this one CNN story alone has a devastating seven quotes where they go uh, and fight one another. First problem came when uh, Sarah Palin started going off the script. See, she's gone, she's gone rogue on them. Won't follow her advisors anymore. They told her, for example, don't bring up uh, the $150,000 in dresses that we bought you. Okay? That's a damaging story. Let's uh, try not to bring it up. So what does she do? She lands, gets off the plane. She's like, all right, I want to talk about those clothes that I bought. They're like, Dip it. In fact, the senior McCain advisor told CNN that those comments were, quote, were not the remarks we sent to her plane. She will not listen to them. And she says, oh, no, that's not what I do. I buy at a consignment store. Oh, okay, and I don't own those. Like, I don't own the lights here. The RNC is paying for them, and I'm not going to keep the clothes. I remember you told us that before the controversy happened, right? Yeah, no. Uh, I'll take a quick pause here to tell you a funny uh, attack that uh, the Republicans are doing from the other side. I got this from the National Republican Black Association because they think I'm a black Republican, and they keep sending me emails, okay? I love them. And they're like, huh, you know what? Depressed. They're so double-sided. They haven't talked a at all about Obama's trip to visit his sick grandmother. That costs a lot of money, too. Now, let me get this right. You're comparing $150,000 worth of clothes from Sachs and Neiman Marcus to Obama visiting his sick grandmother. Okay, go ahead, man. Have at it, Hoss. That's a terrible strategy, dude. Go forward. Move forward. And during the email, uh, during the article that they sent from Newsmax, so like absolute right-wing clown site, uh, they're like, he did, they didn't say ailing grandmother. They said failing grandmother. Come on, man. I mean, just, they, we're, they have no sense. They have no sense. I mean, I know they don't have much of a humanity, but that doesn't work politically. To call an old woman who is in, a lot, in severe... Uh, trouble health-wise to call her a failing grandmother and to say, oh, yeah, it costs a lot of money to visit her. So we're even on the clothes thing, right? So Sarah Palin lands and says, what? You know what? No, Mimi, I don't own these clothes. No, uh, she dresses it when they told her not to. Several McCain advisors suggested that they have become increasingly frustrated, and I'm quoting CNN here, uh, with what one aide de uh, described as Palin going rogue. It's a quote, Palin going rogue. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, now we go on to uh, a Palin associate. Now, she's going to strike back and says the candidate is simply, quote, trying to bust free of what she believes was a damaging and mismanaged rollout. And the Palin people are saying, huh, if you just let her go to work and do things the way she wanted to and do all these media appearances, everything would have been fine. The McKee people are like, are you kidding? Said, the problem was she went and had too many media appearances, not too little, right? Here we go. McCain sources say Palin has gone off message several times, and they privately wonder whether the incidents were deliberate. They cited an instance when she labeled robocalls irritating, even as the campaign was defending them. And they pointed out that her telling reporters she disagreed with the campaign's decision to pull out of Michigan. So there's three separate instances where she is uh, saying what the campaign did is wrong. Uh, second McCain source says she appears to be looking out for herself more than the McCain campaign. Here's another quote. I love this one. You ready for this? She's a diva. She takes no advice from anyone. She does not have any relationships of trust with any of us, her family, or anyone else. Did you hear that? 
not only does she not have a relationship of trust with the McCain advisors, they said not even with her own family. Now that's harsh, man. Uh, it's not me. It's the McCain people telling CNN. Continue. Also, she's playing for her own future, and this is again a quote from McCain advisors, and sees herself as the next leader of the party. Remember, divas trust only onto themselves as they see themselves as the beginning and end of all wisdom. Man, that is harsh, and I'm not done yet. Here's quote number five. In response, uh, because now the McCain, like I said, the Palin people are saying, ah, oh, it wasn't us. It was these McCain advisors like Nicole Wallace. Nicole Wallace is one of the top senior aides to McCain, and CNN asked her about it, and she doesn't even bother to go uh, and hide her identity. She says, all right, I'll say on the record. She sent an email to CNN saying, if people want to throw me under the bus, my personal belief is that the most audible thing to do is to lie there. So she's saying, look, man, they're throwing me under the bus here. It's obvious. And uh, I'll take it, but it's not pretty, and it shouldn't be done. Uh, two sources, this is, it gets better and better, one Palin associate and one McCain advisor defended the decision to keep her media interaction limited after she was picked, both saying flatly that she was not ready and that the missteps could have been a lot worse. Quote, her lack of fundamental understanding of some key issue was dramatic. These are McCain advisors talking about Sarah Palin, their VP pick, okay? With direct knowledge of the process in trying to prepare her. Okay, that advisor, according to CNN, has direct knowledge of the rep preparations of Palin. The source said, quote, that it was probably the hardest to get her up to speed than any candidate in history. And yet another senior McCain advisor, now this is a totally different one, said this is what happens when a campaign uh, that's behind. It brings out the worst in people, finger pointing and scapegoating. So they are all over each other. The McCain people are saying, what do you mean we didn't put you out enough? And every time we put you out, you got your ass handed to you. No matter how much we tried to prepare you, we couldn't do it because you're not that bright and you don't know anything. We're trying our best here. And the Palin people are saying, oh, man, oh, if they just let us go, come on, we had them. We had them. It reminds me of a uh, boxer who's been knocked out and who's trying to clear his head, still on the canvas, going, why'd you stop the fight? Why'd you stop it, man? I had him. I had him. Yeah, I know. I know you did. I know you did, big guy. Now just take a deep breath. We're going to get you to the hospital. Everything's going to be okay, all right? You didn't have him, okay? You were totally clownish and outmatched. And what's great is that they really think she's going to run in 2012. Please, please run her. Please. Okay? Come on, let's do another round. This time do more media interviews. Come on, the Young Turks. It'll be terrific. <laughs> okay, okay. Don't get complacent. Seven days, okay? Come on. Let's work hard. But I'm just saying, they're in a world of trouble. Uh, uh, this, is, this is what you get, man, a team of Mavericks. <laughs> a team of Mavericks. They want to do whatever they want, man. They yeah. get some bumping heads all the place. Man, that is excellent, yeah, exactly right. What can you do? Team of Mavericks. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, then they asked uh, Joe Lieberman, what do you think about Sarah Palin? You know, because he's one of the ones that are uh, coaching her and, with foreign policy uh, mainly. And he said, quote, Thank God she's not going to have to be president from day one. <laughs> now, to be fair to Lieberman, he didn't quite mean it that way. He meant 
like, you know, hopefully nothing will happen to John McCain so she won't be president on day one. And he says, oh, you know, she's going to be ready, etc. But I'll give you the full quote. And you get a sense that he's not exactly confident of the situation. Quote, if God forbid an accident occurs or something that, uh, of that kind, she'll be ready. She had the, she's had the executive experience. She's smart. And she will have on-the-job training. Now, nobody ever talks about on-the-job training unless you're not ready, unless you need that training, right? I mean, would he ever say, oh, don't worry, John McCain will have on-the-job training? No, nobody would ever say that, right? I, I think he would need it, but nobody would say that. They're saying about her because she doesn't have that training and she's not ready. And he says, I hope and pray that I am working my heart out for McCain to be elected our next president. But if for whatever reason he's not, I'm going to do everything I can to be part of bringing people together across party lines to support the new president so he can succeed. What's at stake at our, for our country is just too serious. How, wait a minute, Joe, what are you saying there? You know what Joe Lieberman is doing? Backpedal, 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 backpedal. There he goes. He's challenging Michael Phelps in the backstroke. Now he came out again today and he's like, uh, you know what? I'll tell you, I, I have been respectful throughout, and I think people will recognize that, and I'm ready to work with whoever the next president is. You know what that means? Joe Lieberman thinks they have lost, and he's like, what? Oh, what, 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 what are you talking about, man? Me and you go all the way back. Remember when you helped me in Connecticut? I've always been respectful, right? Yeah, how about the time that you argued that Obama campaign was using, quote, sleazy tactics? How about the time you said it was a good question whether Obama was a Marxist? How about those respectful moments? How about when you said that Barack Obama uh, undermined the troops and he didn't put his country first, he put his campaign first? Were those respectful, Joe? Hmm. Man, when Lieberman tries to jump off the ship, that ship is sunk. to lift your shoulders when the shoulder you need is gone when you up and left me that was when I fell hope you'll forgive me but when I hear you're doing well my heart says Tale. Once there was a proud old vet who had a job he wished to get. He hoped to be the head of state, but who would be his running mate? Lieberman or Colin P? Hutchinson or Rudy G? Liddy Dole or Condi Rice? The Mormon guy whose hair is nice? Thompson, Gingrich, Bloomberg, Huck? Sarah Palin? What the f***? Meet my maverick, said the vet. She killed a bridge and sold a jet. This hockey mom is real and plain. She's just your average six-pack Jane. 
Like Rudy G, she ain't New York. Like Lieberman, she won't touch pork. She'll shake things up and make some noise and stand up to all those good old boys. She's real down home, she's just like you. Except one thing, it's just not true. Because you see, this vet he did not vet and chose a brunette he'd hardly met. And when you screen your nominees, like hiring help at Applebee's, one has to think you've lost your mind. Cause look at all these things you find. An earmark queen who spends and spends and hires all her high school friends. That nowhere bridge, she loved it so. And when it died, she kept the dough. She watches Putin rear his head from her state house tanning bed. Wants to ban the books you read. Hopes to see her state secede. Shuns the press when she campaigns. Thinks it's cool to hunt from planes. Hasn't really passed reform. Isn't sure the earth gets warm. Has a thing for voodoo prayers and wants to wipe out polar bears. Who knows just how you found her, John? It's W. Bush with lipstick on. And because this vet chose not to vet, he used your life to play roulette. So spin the wheel and place your bet. Cause if he croaks, here's what you'll get. You'll stay up nights and moan and fret with thoughts of wars and bombs and threat of crashing stocks and endless debt, a disappearing safety net. Your chest is tight, you're doused in sweat, you're filled with rage and deep regret. Your tongue is dry, your pants are wet, you latch out on the internet and throw things at your TV set. But here's one thing you can't forget. It hasn't happened yet. La, 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 la. Robert Draper, who's a very respected uh, journalist at GQ, uh, apparently uh, does have some inside information about what's going on there, and let me quote him for you. He said, I'm sympathetic to Eskew and Wallace. Now, I don't share that, but that's what Draper says. And not just because they're decent people, they've held their tongue from leaking what a couple of McCain higher-ups have told me, namely that Palin simply knew nothing about national and international issues, which meant, as one such advisor uh, told me, Letting Sarah be Sarah may not be such a good thing. It's a grim binary choice, but apparently came down to whether to make Palin look like a scripted robot or an unscripted ignoramus. Okay, this is pretty br brutal. I was told that Palin chafed at being defined by her discomfitting performances in the Kirk, Charlie Gibson, and Sean Hannity interviews. She wanted to get back out there and do more 
Well, if you're SQ and Wallace, what do you say about that? Your responsibility isn't the care and feeding of Sarah Palin's ego. It is the furtherance of John McCain's quest for the presidency. So apparently McCain higher-ups telling reporters that Palin was so grossly underprepared and unprepared on both international and national issues that they couldn't risk McCain's campaign by putting her out there and doing more interviews. Meanwhile, she, in her crazy head, kept thinking, oh, if you let me do more, I could fix it. But every time they put her out to do more, she'd make it worse. She couldn't even handle an interview with Sean Hannity. I mean, the man just threw up softball after softball, and she's still like, woof, 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 just totally swinging away and whiffing. So they're like, no, we can't. We can't let you do this kind of damage to the McCain campaign. So uh, apparently McCain himself is also pissed because uh, Draper, again, uh, notes here, that uh, during the Straight Talk Express bus ride at one point, McCain froze out Palin and wouldn't talk to her at all, and that there was an uncomfortable silence between the two. Great. Now we're back in third grade. Oh, I'm not talking to you. JR, can you tell Sarah that I'm not talking to her? Okay? This is the Straight Talk Express, but we won't be doing any talking on here. All right. Uh, let's hope that that kind of trouble uh, shows itself up on Election Day and uh, makes a difference. Now, speaking of trouble and Sarah Palin, uh, here she goes again. Remember earlier we told you that uh, she had spent $50,000 to remodel the mayor's office, and according to one critic, um, uh, it looked like a bordello afterwards. There was red curtains everywhere, and they, she did not get permission from the city council. And, you know, whether you think it looked like a bordello or not is, t of course, not relevant, but for a tiny little town for the mayor to spend $50,000 redecorating her office is outrageous. And I thought the most outrageous part of that story was uh, when uh, this person challenged Sarah Palin and said, hey, we can't do this without city council approval. She hadn't done it legally. Uh, here's his direct quote. Uh, I, it was a guy by the name of Carney. He said, I told her that it was against the law to make such a large expenditure without the council taking a vote. She said, I'm the mayor I can do whatever I want until the courts tell me I can't. Now, who does that sound like? That sounds exactly like George W. Bush. Now, that was the old story. Now, here's a new story. She apparently did the same exact thing in the governor's office. So when she won the governorship, she was like, well, I love that remodeling job, and I did it in Wasilla. Let's do it again. She remodeled the governor's office to the tune of over $50,000. And then she goes on the campaign trail. She's like, oh, I fired the chef, and I got rid of the plane, and I did this and that. What she doesn't tell you is, yeah, I fired the chef because I was sitting at home the whole time and taking a per diem off of the taxpayers of Alaska, so I didn't need the chef. And I fired, I got rid of the plane, but I sold it at a, at a loss of about $70,000. And then afterwards, I demanded that the cops give me their plane to use. And 20% of the time, the official state police plane was used by Governor Palin, and she'd get upset if it wasn't available, if they were out in an emergency. And now we find out she absolutely threw away $50,000 remodeling the governor's office. We don't have any information on whether the governor's office also looks like a bordello. Okay, I don't know why she even wanted to remodel it. She was hardly ever there. Do you know that in the Alaska uh, legislature, they used to have pins saying, where's Sarah? Okay, she's only been governor for less than two years. Where the hell did she go? Who does that remind you of? A guy who would go down to Crawford and not show up to work much. All right, George W. Bush. 
man, this woman is a danger. She's a danger. And, you know, you think this election is over. This election isn't over. You know, everybody's assuming Obama's going to win. Everybody I talk to, they talk as if Obama has already won. I don't know if you know this, but we haven't had the election yet. It's on November 4th. Man, just think about this. If Obama doesn't win and John McCain wins, how absolutely devastated all of us are going to be. You can't do that, man. You've got to encourage every single person to vote. Go volunteer. Work on a phone bank. Get out the vote if you're in a swing state. Go door to door. Always be closing. I mean, if you're tired of me saying it, I'm sorry. But I've got to say it because it can make all the difference in the world. And I wrote about this on the website. Uh, we mentioned it a little bit yesterday. But, man, if on November 5th we wake up and the world sees that we've elected John McCain, they're going to think, see, America's so full of crap. Oh, yeah, right, the black guy, the one with the name Barack Hussein Obama. You ignorant villagers in America, you, you know, you know what they think of us. And I got another listener that wrote an email to us telling us about it. Oh, in France, they're saying they think that we're so provincial, that we're like a bunch of villagers, and all we ever do is elect idiots like George W. Bush. This is our chance at redemption, man. They got these new 24 banners all over L.A. here where we live, you know, the show 24, and they have a new slogan for this season, redemption. And they just rolled it out on our building. There's this giant sign on our building where the studio is, and it says redemption. That's what we're going for, man. November 4th, it's all about redemption. Because I'll tell you what, you elect Barack Obama, all of a sudden the rest of the world shakes their head and goes, oh, wow, maybe America's for real. Maybe actually they do really believe in equality. Dennis Prager and some conservative talk shows don't. But Americans overall, George W. Bush was a mistake. Oh, my God, we thought he was the rule. Turns out he was the exception. We hope. And they were so grand so magnificent that after seven years after 9-11 and five years after we invaded Iraq to topple a man named Saddam Hussein, that we would elect as president of the United States of America a man named Barack Hussein Obama. Is America that grand? Is it that big? Is it that wonderful? I think it is. What have I told you all throughout as the six years we've been doing this show? I believe in America. I might be hokey and I might be corny, but I really believe it in my core. And we're going to find out in a couple of days if my belief is founded or if I have misplaced my faith in this country. But I believe, and I believe we can do the right thing and show the rest of the world that America's for real. you got a couple of days, and it's up to you. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is the last you'll hear from me until after the big event. We're a mere hours away from walking collectively as a country to the edge of a cliff, closing our eyes and jumping off, only then to find out whether or not our parachutes will open. I certainly hope to see all of you safe and sound on the ground in a few days' time. If you need a hand to hold while you go over the edge, Come to bestofleftpodcast.com where we will be uh, huddled in small groups for warmth under the glow of a live video stream covering the news of the day 
That's happening Tuesday. That's this Tuesday. I think you know what I'm talking about. From 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern Time. We will also be chatting in hushed tones, trying in every way not to jinx any uh, positive news we may be seeing out of the events of the night. For the next few days, I will be maintaining a bit of radio silence out of necessity. Uh, for you see, the world we are living in now in almost no way resembles the world we will all be experiencing a few days from now. Any news I may have to tell you would be uh, utterly useless and laughable uh, in a few days. And, uh, and so we will be back when we have something appropriate to report about. You know, in just in case any, like, major event happens, um, any news breaks that, uh, that people seem to be talking about, if, uh, if something like that happens and we get sufficient response to that story as it develops, uh, we'll be bringing that to you. In the meantime, keep checking out the blog at bestofleft.com. Keep voting for us at podcastawards.com. And if I survive the plunge... I'll talk to you in just a few days. Coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the borders and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., this is Jay. This has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you from bestofleft.com. It was a creed written into the founding documents that declared the destiny of the nation. Yes, we can. It was whispered by slaves and abolitionists as they blazed the trail toward freedom. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It was sung. It was sung by immigrants as they struck out the distant shore of pioneers who pushed westward against unforgiving wilderness. Yes, we can. It was the call of workers organized, women who reached for the ballots, a president who chose the moon as our new frontier, and a king. To the, to the Of 